Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with Dr. Hussein Yassin, who is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California. He directs the Yassin Lab, which specializes in how changes in lipid metabolism and nutrition affect cognition and the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. The lab has an interest in studying how carrying the ApoE4 allele, the strongest genetic risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease, affects lipid metabolism, the response to diet, combining basic science, clinical trials, and brain imaging studies. He directs the Roy Ball Alzheimer's Disease Research Program focused on understanding how obesity, diabetes, and vascular risk factors in Los Angeles Latinx population affect cognition and Alzheimer's disease risk using longitudinal studies with cerebrospinal fluid and brain imaging biomarkers. He also runs the Lipid Clinic at the healthcare centers in East Los Angeles, providing care for a large population of complex lipid and diabetes disorders that are referred from all over the Los Angeles County clinics. It was an amazing conversation and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thank you for joining us today. Well, Dr. Yassin, it's so wonderful to have you here with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, my, my pleasure. And uh, thank you both Dean and Aisha for this invitation. Wonderful. Uh, we're both, as you know, neurologists and we do research um, I was the director of uh, research education for uh, Loma Linda for many years. And then at Cedar sinai we were both the co-directors of brain health in uh, Cedar sinai And then in uh, back in uh, Loma Linda um, as the directors of uh, brain health and Alzheimer's prevention program. But our singular focus has been on prevention and lifestyle. And, and um, that's where we actually kind of got to know about you quite a bit. And just recently just submitted two comprehensive reviews, one on uh, omega-3s and the developing brain and another one on omega-3s and the aging brain. And your work is seminal, critical to all of this. But before we go any further into the work, your background is interesting. You come from uh, Lebanon, right? I do. I was born and raised in Lebanon and I moved here approximately 20 years ago. Fantastic. And my mother used to, well, she had a pretty interesting life, um, used to travel a lot and used to go to Lebanon a lot as, and said that it was one of the most uh, beautiful places in the world uh, where you could actually swim in the morning and then go skiing and, and do all kinds of things in uh, Paris of the East. So I, I know quite a bit about uh, Lebanon and uh, from my mother's story. So it's wonderful uh, to, to have you here. And then you did some interesting academic work, right? Endocrinology and neurology and all of that stuff. Would love to know about the, that, that kind of background. Yeah, so I actually uh, did uh, internal medicine and then went into endocrinology. And then after endocrinology, did some training in lipidology. And then I moved to USC in 2012. And USC has a rich uh, group of Alzheimer's disease. And since my work has been on APOE, uh, but not in the brain, in the blood. Uh, I was invited to investigate APOE in the brain, and I, I and I then I, I spent a significant amount of time um, learning and training within the neurology people, and and now I'm dual appointed. I'm in both both medicine and neurology. That's amazing. Fantastic. That's incredible. How did you get into the world of APOE four? Uh, well, APOE before APOE four. APOE is critical in 
cholesterol transport and um, understanding how ApoE functions helps us understand uh, brain, uh, not just brain, uh, general lipid turnover. And uh, ApoE plays a critical role in orchestrating how fatty acids, cholesterol, and other lipid molecules are transported at the intersection of uh, immunity, sex differentiation, and lipid metabolism, atherosclerosis. So um, it has a fundamental role. And uh, the discovery that APOE4 associates with greater AD risk has shifted the, the play field. And, uh, and now APOE4 is at the center of Alzheimer's disease because of that role. The main question was, how did the, uh, you know, the nervous system, specifically neurons and, and glia and microglia and astrocytes, how are they different from the rest of the um, cells in the body? In itself, that is also a very general question. And can, but um, uh, the fact that they're different in certain ways kind of frames why the structure is different, why the energetics is different, so and and why the blood-brain barrier and all of that. That would be a, a wonderful place to start. Sure. So it's a really tough question, and I don't think anybody knows for sure, but I can give you some guesses from my own understanding, and I have to admit that my understanding is a work in progress. Um, fundamentally, the brain differs from the rest of the organs is by for forming neuronal circuits and neurons firing all the time, and that requires um, more of an electric grid uh, to be able to support such a firing machine. Uh, you need a lot of energy, and that's reflected by how much uh, oxygen and ATP and uh, glucose the brain is consuming consumed compared to the rest of the system. The brain, the brain organizes itself in, in, in layers and in sheath uh, of myelin. So typically a neuron will have an axon, dendrites, and they're wrapped around by sheath of myelin. That wiring is really meant to facilitate this electric... Uh, uh, or, or action potentials and conduct conduction of signals to f to be efficiently to be able to do this um, the brain runs on a different energy system than the rest of the body uh, for example the, the most uh, conventional or most understood approach is that the brain would take up glucose from the periphery independent of insulin and um, Neurons don't really know what to do with glucose, so the, their role is to just fire and and create this connect set of connections. So they they rely on astrocytes, which are glial cells next to the neurons, touching the neurons. Really, when when you do microscopy work, you see how this twin sisterhood is happening. You know, astrocytes are wrapping around their feet, uh, forming what we call gliosomes around the neurons and. The astrocytes will take in this glucose and make, uh, through a specific short cycle, lactose or lact lactate, specifically. Lactate is shuttled now into the neuron, and the neuron quickly uses lactate to produce ATP um, and to, to enter into different cycles. For the most part, uh, this sistership between the astrocyte and the neuron makes it quite successful. Um, now, neurons are, are, are filled with fatty acids, including omega-3s, but that's not their source of energy, unlike skeletal muscle that can take up fatty acids uh, and then burn them to make ATP 
In fact, one molecule of fatty acid can give you up to 36 ATP molecules, quite more impressive than glucose. Uh, the neuron prefers not to do so, and for a good reason. Uh, that's because when you break down uh, fatty acids, you tend to have oxidative stress. And the brain cannot afford to have any oxygen-free radicals floating around. So it turns to a less efficient system, but a quicker system. So generation of ATP through lactose is very quick. It's not very efficient. You only produce, I think, two molecules of ATP, but it's very quick. So it allows you to keep going in a, a so-called um, anaerobic glycolysis mode. Because, you know, lactate is typically what muscles would use during anaerobic glycolysis. So th this makes the brain quite special. Its energy needs and how it operates requires a separation from the blood system. And that's why you've got a very well-developed blood-brain barrier to make sure exactly what the brain needs is delivered and um, allows the brain to operate efficiently. Absolutely. That's, that, that's, uh, and, and speaks to the differential energy utilization. I mean, this, this, this three-pound organ consumes quite a bit of energy of the body. I mean, it's only 2% of the body's weight, and the numbers that have been floated is 20% to 20% of energy, although that varies from time to time. But it's quite significant energy utilization. And what interests me is, for many reasons, I mean, I look at the sleep process, I look at the energetics of the brain. Why? Why would we sacrifice so much for this, this little organ and, and almost a complete different system? And even structurally, it's different, isn't it? As far as uh, how it, um, uh, its cellular structure is, is constructed is actually different. And of course, that doesn't even speak to the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, which is almost a magical thing when you look at how it maintains the homeostasis of the central nervous system and that it doesn't allow you know, any big molecule, any toxins or parasites or any pathogens to pass through it. And the protection of blood-brain barrier also requires certain molecules. And it's just such a beautiful hermetic system to protect the brain. It's just fascinating. Yes, and we're starting to understand more and more of how the system is formed and uh, obviously how diseases are breaking the system. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, including the lymphatic process, which we up to recently, um, in, 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 in scientific terms, it's recently, uh, we didn't even know that there was a lymphatic process in the brain as far as clearance. And now we, we, we kind of have developed a slightly better picture of that, although it's been overstated in, in, in the media and all that, but it is uh, quite, quite interesting. Now, I wanted to kind of go into the energy utilization um, uh, as, as, as a, a next process. We, we kind of alluded to that a bit as far as lactate is concerned, but as far as energy usage and utilization and efficiency, what's the most optimal uh, source of energy for a brain? And even I, I completely recognize the overgeneralization of that statement, but we can actually break that down into a little more a nuance. But from your perspective, what's the optimal? Uh, well, the, it's, there's no debate about that. I think glucose is by far the single most important molecule that the brain needs. Uh, and... Uh, You've got all these homeostatic mechanisms to make sure that the brain is getting glucose, including insulin resistance. Uh, so people get, ins when they get insulin resistance uh, during acute exercise, for example, if you, if you acutely take your bike or run, uh, your muscle tissues will become insulin resistant. 
that's opposed to chronic exercise where you become insulin sensitive. But part of the reason the physiology goes to insulin resistance is to provide a hyperglycemic state to keep the brain going at times of fasting. So, so glucose, and, and that's exactly why insulin does not regulate glucose delivery across the blood-brain barrier. So when tissues like the muscle or the adipose tissue or the liver are now failing to respond to insulin, this is shuttling glucose into the brain to keep the brain going. Now, that system breaks, and when that breaks, even without disease, when you deplete all of your glycogen, uh, let's say you did 100 miles of biking, and then you, know, you're, you don't have glucose anymore. This, the system shifts to ketosis, and you start breaking down fatty acids, and the, the brain can use ketone bodies uh, as opposed to, to sugar as a source of energy uh, to keep it going and to maintain its homeostatic uh, disease, uh, homeostatic mechanisms. Um, now, uh, speaking to that, um, that shift into ketosis and, and is a critical point because uh, recently, I know that we're going to a, a little bit of a tangent, but recently this, there's a big push for keto, ketone body-driven uh, diets, right? Uh, whether it's ketogenic diet or, or supplementation, uh, or for supplementation that yeah, yeah. MCT and others as a primary source of energy for the brain. What would be your perspective perspective on that? I don't know. I, I honestly uh, do, not, do not know whether uh, ketogenic diets uh, will have a long-term uh, role in, in brain energy metabolism. There is some evidence that short-term, uh, the brain can use ketone bodies uh, to maintain its, uh, its functioning. And, the groups at Canada, led by Stephen Cadane and others, have had some nice uh, small-scale studies suggesting that uh, you know three months to six months of ketone supplements are uh, changing brain uptake of ketone bodies, and that's translating into some mild improvement in cognitive performance. Now, bear in mind these are short-term studies, and they are, in my view, I'm not convinced that they're disease-modifying, meaning that they don't change amyloid tau or other features of neurodegeneration. That doesn't mean that they may not be proven to be disease-modifying. I think longer-term studies will show that. Uh, I don't have strong views against all four keto ketogenic diets. I, I, I don't know enough of them to tell you whether they should be given or not given. I think that the, the days are still early for this specific diet. We agree with you completely. And when we looked at the data, like you said, it was tested in a very small a number of people for a very short period of time. And uh, whether it's a supplement or impl you know, implementation of a ketogenic diet, which tends to be higher in fats, specifically if it's saturated fats, we have enough data from observational studies, prospective studies that increased saturated fat could potentially increase the risk of cardiovascular diseases and other metabolic uh, disorders. So I agree that it's a bit early for us to, you know, give it a thumbs up or an okay, as, as you hear in the media. Yeah, I do have to make a small comment. I, I, I wouldn't even say saturated fat increases the risk of atherosclerosis. I think more recent studies led by Ron Krauss and others Suggested it depends where the saturated fat is coming from. Saturated fat from milk or cheese may not be the same as saturated fat from meat. So even that term can be refined and uh, dug 
deeper into. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, we have to um, look at diet as more holistic as opposed to individual ingredients and try to avoid labeling uh, certain micronutrients as good or bad because the field is moving away from micronutrients, and, and according to my understanding at least, more into what we call dietary patterns. Absolutely, absolutely. There, there are no such things as superfoods or you know individual foods affecting brain. We eat different types of food. It's the synergy between these food products and micronutrients and macronutrients that matter most. That's why people are studying more dietary patterns, like you said, whether it's the Mediterranean diet or the Mind diet or the dietary approach to uh, stop hypertension. Um, that actually matters most, which is which is very. Um, uh, you know, it's it's encouraging to to see that and uh, to see it apply to larger populations over a long period of time, and especially for a disease that takes such a long time to develop. Yes, one of the things that that is um, uh, what you spoke to, which is interesting, is that now we're la adding layers of complexity, and and as humans, layers of complexity always uh, scares us, and so we <laughs> we run away towards simplicity. Uh, but, but the other layers of complexity is our own personal experience, past history, especially when it comes to chronic diseases with like Alzheimer's, our genotypic expression and how that evolves over time. Like the, the layers of complexity is, is there that we have to actually explore more than just this monosyllabic one big thing. This is good and this is bad. That, that, that approach has to be abandoned for more, more complexity. Now, that doesn't mean that in the meantime, we should be paralyzed from a public health perspective. We, we ourselves, like you, you work in the uh, Latinx population and we work in the African-American population doing uh, lifestyle interventions and things of that nature. We have some evidence that in general, increasing or reducing certain things can help. But of course, that has to be better elucidated over time. Um, speaking to that and, and what really has interested me over the last few years is the field of lipidology and how that's actually becoming more and more clear, more, well, well to, to the, to the, as, as time and science uh, allows itself. With lipidology, one of the areas of interest is specifically, specifically lipoproteins. And lipoprotein world has completely opened up and and what we just spoke about this complexity is even more complex when it comes to lipoproteins you know lipoprotein a e's b's and all of these specifically in our case we're looking at lipoprotein e4 um and its relationship with alzheimer's but um I, i'm not going to explore the other ones but i would like to explore the uh, your understanding of um, e, uh, the, the lipoprotein E's and its relationship with disease in general, but um, uh, and Alzheimer's and dementia in particular. Right. So, great question. Uh, and, you know, people know lipoproteins uh, indirectly by when, when they go to their doctor and they, they get a lipid panel and they tend to tell, tell them, you, this is your LDL and HDL and so forth. And I constantly tell my students that you're not looking at really the LDL or HDL, you're looking at the LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol. Because LDL really is a particle and it contains cholesterol. And that particle is driven by a bus driver. And I, I usually use the, the analogy of buses because it's easy to explain. Uh, so the bus driver in case of LDL would be ApoB and the, the bus itself would be a particle and the, the passengers would be cholesterol or lipids such as phospholipids or triglycerides and so forth. 
So yes, uh, lipoproteins form particles, and they're composed. They can they can contain apolipoproteins as the driver. Usually, that defines it. And the content can be different kinds of lipids. Among different lipoproteins, you've got the ApoB, which makes the LDL particles. You've got ApoA1, cap capital A, and that makes the HDL particles. And you've got uh, things which are more magical. <laughs> And I, I hate to use the term magical, but uh, APOEs and APOCs are more elusive. They tend to be existing in different particles between HDL and LDL. They, can, they like to be on particles known as IDLs, intermediate density, which we don't really measure by, by conventional labs. And those are uh, more mavericks. They, they, they hop across different particles, and by doing so, uh, they, they tend to or or orchestrate the speed of, of turnover. So when APOE jumps from HDL to VLDL, it will accelerate VLDL catabolism. And uh, when APOC3 jumps from HDL to VLDL, it will slow down uh, VLDL catabolism. And that balance is critical to the delivery of their content. So when you slow them, you actually allow more fatty acids to go to other places when you rapidly increase this flux. The liver will take up more of that. So that's what, what, where APOE and APOC3s have very unique roles. Now, APOE has an additional unique role because it has not only is it you know, made in the liver, but it's also a, a big chunk of it is made in the astrocytes in the brain. And in the brain, it seems to have maybe a similar but slightly different role. In the liver, and it's in, in plasma, it orchestrates energy storage between different compartments, uh, whether it's adipose, uh, liver, muscle, and so forth. In the brain, it tends to support uh, the transport of lipids between glial cells and neurons and keeps them happy and firing. But Bear in mind, they are not absolutely essential. In fact, there are case reports of APOE knockout humans who have aged and uh, no, no obvious signs of diseases. So the jury is still out of how critical APOE is for the human brain. And I, my personal view is that if you can live an ideal life where you have no trauma, uh, where you have no metabolic diseases, uh, you may actually not need APOE. The, the problem is, if you need plasticity, meaning that you've got a lot of injury repair with aging, not having APOE is putting you at risk of, of, of disease. And perhaps that can explain that the APOE4 version of APOE um, is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease because it's not efficient. Uh, it doesn't help efficiently recycle lipids. And in fact, it costs the system uh, more and more work and the system burns out. Fascinating. So just for the listeners to understand, so the different types of APOEs. So APOE2 is protective, which means that when people have APOE2, they have the efficient version and they're at a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease based on the data that we have. APOE3, from my understanding, is a wash, while APOE4 is the inefficient form. And when people have copies of APOE4, whether it's one or two, they have increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Is that correct? 
Yeah, but let me clarify and maybe use the term maladaptive as opposed to inefficient. Because that's not true for African-Americans or Hispanics. That only applies to whites. And in, in Nigeria, 50% of people are Ethiopian. They don't have the, an epidemic of dementia. And even in the U.S., African-Americans would have carried the AP4 allele, do not seem convincingly have a strong risk of dementia. So it's really maladaptive when it's co-inherited with other sets of genes. Um, our ancestral APOE form is E4. We all were E4 200,000 years ago. And with, uh, you know, selection by evolution, you've got more E3 and now more E2s. But E4 is our ancestral gene. And for maybe a reason, E4 has strong immune responses to fight against purple sepsis that's been shown in Brazilian slums and in Africa. Um, the ability to, for the macrophage that has ApoE4 to, to fight off parasitic infections is highly efficient. Uh, to fight off purple sepsis and allows for childbirth is highly efficient. So we cannot look at ApoE4 as a good or a bad guy. It is not really good or bad. It's maladaptive in certain populations especially Scandinavians or people from Japan. These populations carrying the ApoE4 substantially increase the risk of Alzheimer's, possibly due to an interaction with another set of genes that resulted in maladaptive responses. It has to do with the haplotype, with the genes that are close by. But my, my, my question is, what is that second hit phenomenon? What is that second element or third element for that matter that increases the risk? Do we know what that uh, other element is in, in those populations? Yeah, my lab works on inflammation, and we think it's inflammation, but again, this is my research, and I have a bias towards that because of our interest, but we think that E4 carriers would develop inflammation, and not from E4. So let's clarify, E4 does not cause inflammation. But E4 carriers who develop inflammation do not know how to tune it down. So acute inflammation becomes chronic inflammation, and in the brain, chronic inflammation results into neuronal loss. This is a hypothesis. I'm not saying that this is true or false. We're studying it as we speak. We have animal models. We have human studies that we are trying to tease it out. But the, the examples that we give to my patients, I'm also a clinician and I see A4 carriers in my clinic. I tell them not to engage, for example, in contact sports or not to have gum disease or not to have any source of chronic, because the E4 does not know how to tune down chronic inflammation. Has, has the inflammatory component been controlled in studies of African-Americans, um, or, or control actually takes it out, but has been uh, accounted for uh, in those populations? We're barely touching the surface of APOE4 and inflammation. So this is a new area, of, and I, I, we barely understand it in whites, and there's a lot of research to happen still. Yeah, yeah, such yeah. so exciting! It is. I, it is. I cannot is. wait to to learn more about that. And another pair of phenomenon is insulin resistance. We looked at in Haynes. We published a paper um, a well few ago. years yeah. ago um, and looked at cognitive. Uh, well, it was a uh, cross sectional, so you can't say decline. It was a cognitive state. So it, it was a uh, an anemic little study, but still, it was in Haynes. It was quite robust and looked at insulin resistance and cognitive state and insulin resistance was strongly associated with cognitive lower cognitive state and then other studies have actually also corroborated that and shown that insulin resistance appears to be both temporarily 
and at, at a particular time cross-sectionally associated with cognitive decline, especially in, in the context of APOE4? Uh, you would argue it's confounded by APOE4. Is APOE4 inherently caused, is one of the causes of insulin resistance. So APOE4, one, one of the mechanisms by, of insulin resistance, there's many, insulin resistance is a blanket term. There's possibly hundreds of reasons why somebody can be insulin resistant. Could be genetic, could be diet, could be lifestyle. There's, and then these mechanisms may differ. And one insulin resistant individual may have better cognitive function at the same level of insulin resistance than another person. In the case of APOE4, insulin resistance is because the APOE is taking the insulin receptor and trapping it in the, in, inside the endosome. APOE is promiscuous. It can bind to different proteins. And among the proteins on the cell surface is the insulin receptor. So typically, APOE4 homozygotes, you'll see that more than often, will be insulin resistant. So it's not the insulin resistance per se. Insulin resistance here could be confounded by APOE4. Correct. So, so it's causal as opposed to being, yeah, understood. And, and, and this, again, I think I know the answer to this, but when you're looking at different um, uh, populations, cohorts, uh, be it African-American or Latinx and others, it's the, uh, we, we don't have enough data as far as that's concerned yet. Uh, the data that I have seen is that uh, it's mixed. In some populations, diabetes does not seem to increase the risk of dementia. And in, in, in others, it is. So I think there's a lot to learn about genetic architecture complexity and many reasons why certain people have it and others don't. Um, you know, if you look at deep down at the haplotype that you mentioned, there's a, a, approximately 19 different SNPs that are co-inherited at chromosome 19 with APOE4. And they are differing between different populations. So some of them might nullify the effect of E4. Absolutely. Now, um, given that, um, um, what's the relationship? Actually, before going into that, um, we wanted to talk about uh, omega-3s. Um, and uh, what, what, what interests us uh, particularly is your work in omega-3 and um, its effect on, on, on brain health, especially given that in our populations, be it social media or in the clinic, one of the things that are, we're being asked about the most is supplementation and omega-3 and those who don't get omega-3 from. So what is your understanding to date as far as omega-3 to omega-6 ratio? Uh, do we have to look at the ratio? Do we have to measure? Is there a measurement, appropriate measurement of, of the ratio or, or omega-3 in particular? And do we need to take supplementation? Yeah, I get asked that question a lot. And my answer hasn't really changed over the past five years or so. My answer is I don't know. Uh, the more I dig into this question, the more I don't know. Uh, that's a, It's a problem because there's so much conflicting evidence. And... Uh, my understanding is that we need omega-3s, um, but also my understanding is that omega-3s as a single nutrient is likely not very effective. Um, so you have to look at omega-3s in the context of the dietary pattern. Typically, omega-3s are associated with seafood consumption. If you take a piece of salmon, for example, and you put it under the microscope, uh, literally speaking, you'll see vitamin B, vitamin D, lutein's, phospholipids, you'll see over 50 different ingredients. Yes, omega-3s are a major ingredient, but they're certainly not the only ingredient. So translating 
a lot of epidemiology of uh, fatty seafood consumption into less Alzheimer's disease by just taking a single ingredient has not really borne fruit. It's not very accurate. And that's the implication is that you may not be able to capture the full effect of uh, fatty seafood uh, in a certain population by just isolating a supplement or a, or a single compound or a molecule like DHA. Um, now, having said that, there could be a role for DHA supplementation in, in very select populations where they don't eat any seafood and they are at risk of dementia. And that has to be refined. We are doing a big trial called Prevent E4, where we're taking E4, Y4 carriers who are at risk of dementia and giving them high doses of omega-3s. That trial was never designed to look at cognition. That trial was designed to look at mechanisms of, of omega-3 brain uptake, delivery, and catabolism. The primary outcome is CSFDHA. And we're looking at uh, fancy MRIs like connectivity, structural, functional, uh, volumetrics, and we have cognition. Uh, but cognition isn't really the primary or even the secondary outcome. And that's by intention. By intention, we are avoiding uh, jumping into the conclusion that omega-3s are, are going to improve cognition. We don't know that. Um, and in addition to that, I have worked with... Uh, you know, a fantastic scientist, Stanley Rappaport at NIH, a long time ago. And Stanley's team has shown that the half-life of omega-3s in the brain is long. And uh, just to give you some context, uh, John Amhau from Stanley's lab published a paper, I think 2013 or even before, uh, showing that the half-life of DHA is about two and a half years. Uh, why is that relevant? Well, if the half-life in the neuronal membrane of an omega-3 is two and a half years. Uh, what does six months of supplementation mean? And most studies can't, don't look beyond that anyway. I mean, they're, they're just the nature of clinical trials. Yeah. But, but yeah. there are times in life that we should be extra aware. So when, when the, because, I mean, a significant portion of the brain is made of omega-3 and omega-6s. I mean, be it ALA, EPA, DHA, and each of them have their own functions and importance. Um, I think the percentage is around uh, 50% or more, I, correct, I believe. Correct, which yeah. is remarkable to, to know that one, you know, one group of um, uh, um, molecules constitute that much of the brain, and that speaks to the unique function of the brain and its ability to create charge and discharge and things of that nature. But, but there are times of life, especially during development of this brain, where the brain is doubling connections and neurons and axons during uh, the first nine months and then uh, during the first five years or so, that you would think that this significantly important molecule, set of molecules would be uh, important. There are some animal studies that have shown that when, when omega-3 was low, that uh, those, those uh, uh, infants didn't do well. And then there are some population studies as well. But, but uh, when we looked at the data, although it, I have to say, when we did this review, we, I've done many reviews, uh, we were left very unsatisfied with the breadth of the studies and the depth of the studies and the, the size of the studies and the way the supplementation was being given and all of that. But nonetheless, there seems to be some trend that early on, um, uh, that is a critical factor to have appropriate amounts of omega-3 
be it through food or supplementation? What's your thoughts, especially at that stage? And also, we saw we found the same thing later in life during aging or mild cognitive impairment stage in others. Right. So my thoughts are rather simple. And in, in, in development, I think omega-3s and omega-6s are both critical for brain development. And the FDA certainly agreed with that over 15, 20 years ago when they approved uh, infant formula to be supplanted, sup, sup, supplemented with both DHA and arachidonic acid. Uh, so the FDA was purviewed to huge literature from, I think, Australia, from the U.S. and others showing that these are important for brain development. It becomes more controversial when we talk about the aging. Uh, it's not very clear whether the same importance holds for the aging brain. Um, Stan Rappaport's team suggests that the brain consumes approximately 4 milligrams of DHA per day. Uh, that's based on isotope studies. Uh, 4 milligrams of DHA per day, let's put that in context. When you go and get a supplement. It usually ranges from 250 to 2,000 or even more milligrams per day. So that's a really tiny fraction. So uh, you can probably get that even if you don't eat seafood. The, the argument, the devil's argument against my own research is that there are populations in India that don't eat seafood. Do they have an epidemic of Alzheimer's? Uh, so we have to keep an open mind. But there is also large populations, whether it's in Europe or the U.S. or others, where, you know, less intake of seafood, and this holds true especially in France. Cecilia Samieri, my colleague and friend, published many papers showing that in the triple C Bordeaux study, uh, lower levels of, you know, omega-3s and less seafood consumption is associated with greater incidence of, of dementia. So the evidence is mixed. Some populations may be able to tolerate an omega-3 deficient diet. Others may not be able to tolerate an omega-3 diet. My lab focuses on ApoE4 carriers, and we are trying to understand whether E4 carriers, which have a lifelong, you know, troublesome relationship with omega-3s, should be supplementing or taking more seafood decades before the onset of cognitive decline. We don't know the answer to that, but this is what I'm actively studying. No, it's, it's beautifully stated. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, <clears throat> we looked at the Adventist Health Study, which is a very robust 96,000 people in Loma Linda, um, supported for more than 50 years by, uh, by NIH. A, sub, a cohort uh, of it, uh, the, the Religious Order Study, 500 individuals, we looked at, they, they had done CVLT, which is a very robust um, um, uh, cognitive tool, looked at um, uh, uh, vegans, vegetarians, pescatarians and omnivores and what we found was uh, in that order in reverse order that is um, the cognitive state but again it was cross-sectional and you do what what you do with the cross-sectional um, it was in that way so it appeared that at least in this one population and I always say you know when when people talk about one little study forget about one if even if you have a huge cohort study that gives you something it doesn't mean as much unless it's reproduced other places and then there's other mechanisms, you know, all of that. But at least in this one cohort, it appeared that the, the lack of fish did not affect cognition that much. And, and the Adventist Health Study, it appears that that seems to be the case in general. They live healthier, both vegetarians and vegans. Uh, it's, it's more of an uh, um, environment and understanding of food and healthy environment and all of that. 
we also have to preface that the Adventists have a much higher knowledge of health in general, which is different than, you know, just being out there and not eating something. So that, that's a different, uh, completely different state as well. So if I understood you correctly, in the Advent study, you did not find an association between seafood consumption and cognition. No, no, no. no. So it was is, that, a, is that what you're trying to say? The, the, the whole food plant, the plant-based complete population did better as far as seaability than the vegetarians, than the pescatarians, which is the seafood, and then the omnivores in that order. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the numbers, we're talking about 500 yeah. people. We're talking about cross-sectional. Uh, we we cannot overstate right. that. We we must not overstate that. And uh, uh, it has to be reproduced. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is that we have. I used to have this uh, simplistic view five ten years ago about what is the omega three role in these different populations, and I kind of moved beyond that view into patterns. So yes, maybe omega three have a role, but in the context of a certain pattern. So let's say. You know, you, you are somebody who, your life is just all over the place. You, 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 you feed on McDonald's, you don't exercise, and you have a very poor background, lack of education. In this particular population, omega-3s may have a different response than in Adventists who are more intellectually engaged and they have communities and support systems and functional reserve. So it, it's not as simplistic as isolating an ingredient. It has to be looked at from a pattern perspective. Absolutely. No, we completely agree with you. I think it's that comprehensive nature of a lifestyle that has to do more with uh, neuropsychological scores or uh, brain health status than one element alone. We completely agree with you. And I think you see that in um, multiple studies of uh, the concept of cognitive reserve, you know, by Dr. Yaakov Stern at Columbia, where he looked at, you know, people who have cognitive reserve, despite of having vascular risk factors and metabolic diseases tend to do better than people who don't have that reserve. So we, we do understand about the the complexity of, of, of the picture. Absolutely. And one of the beautiful things that you uh, I've heard you say is that the difference between the diseases of the heart and the brain, and it's quite profound because one is, a, I wouldn't call it acute because the, the creation of the plaque and, and the narrowing of the artery is not that acute, but compared to what happens to the brain over 20, 30 years, and it's not even just the vascular component. It's not even just the inflammatory or all this other stuff. We're talking about the reserve component. The cognitive reserve component is, is significant that you don't see that in other, in other organs. So you have to really completely look at it in a different way than you would a cardiovascular or a liver disease. Yes. Uh, I think if, if we simplify uh, brains into disease, no disease based on neuropathology, you might approximate what's happening in the heart. If you just look at somebody's brain as, what is the black bone? What is the neurofibrillary tangle score? What is so and so? It might behave similar. But when you actually insert cognition into this factor, you get confused. Why do these people have good cognition when their brain is filled with tangles? I mean, you start, you know, pulling your hair out and that's where other aspects of you know neuroscience come, comes into play, and Jacob Stern's research in cognitive reserve is fascinating. So, yes, it is more complex and has partially explained why a lot of these trials uh, in, in neuroscience and cognition have failed because you're chasing a very difficult outcome. 
it's an outcome that can be shaped by a million things. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, and, the, and the only thing we have for cognitive reserve is education, because it's easy to, uh, to, you know, 10 years of education, 12 years, 14 years. And that's not a re good representation of cognitive reserve when you look in, in the population. So uh, we fully agree on that. I love the complexity that you presented. And I, I think it's important for everyone to understand the nuance when it comes to brain health. We live in a world when everybody's trying to simplify everything. So we seek conversations that, you know, parses things out. But given given everything we know, there are some general rules to follow. Um, and, you know, the way we speak, we, we go to the communities and we speak at the communities and we use this platform to also propagate information about brain health. You know, there are some set rules that we already know. So say, for example, exercise is incredibly important for people. You know, people who exercise on a regular brain, uh, on a regular basis, they have better looking brains, whether it's vascular health, whether it's, you know, specifically the size of the hippocampus and the neural connections. Uh, we, as far as food is concerned, we know that a diet that is similar to the Western style diet, which is highly processed or has a lot of, you know, um, simplified refined carbohydrates and less complex carbohydrates and good fats, they tend to be, uh, you know, harmful. Do you agree with that, Dr. Yassin? I, I, I agree, but I, I also have a comment to make. I, I think in my mind, it's easier to point out to the bad stuff, although I'm trying to avoid good and bad, but uh, it's easier to point your finger at bad stuff than to point your finger at good stuff. Uh, let me just explain. Uh, for example, two decades ago, it was a clear decision uh, by the FDA to pull trans fat out of the market because there was really no controversy that trans fat is harmful in its atherosclerotic potential. Now, can we say the same about saturated fat or polyunsaturated fat or sugars? Probably not. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that you can possibly say, for example, increased consumption of simple sugars, um, processed food is uh, less healthy as opposed to saying that this is healthy. Because within the this is health, a healthy group, there's a lot of different variation, even within exercise. Some people can get the same benefit with less intensity. So the, it's a big field, and uh, the good thing may take different shapes, but the bad thing is easier to point out. To. Fascinating. I have a, I have a question, um, and kind of um, the statement about saturated fat. So uh, I follow the, the, the no harm, uh, do no harm perspective of, of, of how we change science. Um, to this point, um, do you think we have enough evidence to change our perspective on so i've been we've been looking at the data on saturated fat and i know that there is some pushback and change and on all of and we don't have a horse in this yes we're we're we ourselves are whole food plant-based but we really don't push that concept to the populations we say these are the things that have been shown to be healthy and these are the things that have been shown to be less healthy and and your journey is your journey everybody has to take their own journey one step at a time and it's the behavioral component because if you impose things on people and if they fail, you've actually done more harm than when you before you came in from a neuropsychological perspective. So I just want for transparency's sake. But at the same time, um, the you know, for example, we spoke about the same thing with ketogenic diet. It's not the fact that a lot of people that get into ketogenic diet get into it because, especially young men, because they think it's about eating meat. 
And by the way, most of those people are not even in ketosis. Um, it's, it's just it's because the amount of data necessary to move us away from a non-processed or less processed food model to a ketogenic diet is not there yet to us, for us to speak in that direction in public health venues. That's that's a critical factor. I mean, when we speak, I think it's critical that we we weigh that component of, of the audience. The second thing is the saturated fat model or the, the, the arguments that are being made now against that or, or for saturated fat, let's say. Do we have enough data to change the course of our conversation yet from your perspective? I, I alluded to that in the beginning. I try to avoid, uh, you know, taking one food component and the exceptions are, for example, trans fat. But for saturated fat, for carbs, uh, for proteins, I would avoid this label because I, I think we know enough that not all saturated fat is the same. Uh, coconut is rich with saturated fat. Would you put it in the same group as processed meat uh, like, uh, you know, bacon or um, even within meats? Do you think, uh, you know, processed meat with, with nitrates is the same as non-processed meat? I try to avoid these um, umbrella applications by, by using a whole class of things. Carbohydrates, you know, there are populations in the Amazon that only eat carbohydrates, and but they, they walk 17,000 steps per day and they don't have diabetes. So I try to say all carbohydrates are the same, but we know that certain simple sugars like fructose corn syrup or trans fats are harmful. But outside of that, I try to avoid saying that you know, certain things are good or certain things are bad because different populations adapt differently and it, 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 it's not as simple. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes I, sense. We understand. Absolutely. Understand. Absolutely. Yeah. What are your thoughts about um, fasting? There's been plenty of research, uh, whether it's animal models and now um, some studies in humans as well, um, as far as fasting and intermittent fasting is concerned. Do you have any um, uh, information on that? Not really. I, I need to be still educated about this topic. Uh, what I could say is that studies in worms and, and yeast do, do, do not necessarily apply to humans. We have to keep an open mind that uh, a recommendation for a 20-year-old may be different than an 80-year-old. I have seen older people who are fasting, and I think this could be counterintuitive. It could be more harmful if you're fasting uh, when at a time where you're losing muscle mass and so I think it's, it's more complicated uh, with populations and there is no easy way out. Like some, you know, I've heard basic scientists make clinical recommendations and they, they make me nervous. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I we love that. completely I, agree with you uh, on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the one other uh, question that we, we, we had was, and I, I, actually you kind of spoke to this as far as the, the, how you approach food, you don't, you know, take out one element or other you look at it at a more as a more comprehensive approach and in the context of a multifaceted approach to brain health one thing that i wanted to kind of bring up as a as a red herring from a, 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 that this week a a a friend of ours used to work uh, when he was a student with me in the uh, in loma linda uh, just recently uh, uh, you know was centerpiece of a controversy around some research that showed uh, um, that uh, the amyloid model in 2006, the papers that were published, um, uh, it was fab potentially, we, we still haven't completely corroborated that, that potentially that that data was fabricated. 
and um, and and that really directed a huge amount of research in one direction um, um, to the point that actually it, it narrowed the field significantly. Have you heard about that? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I did. Everybody in the Alzheimer field has heard about that. It's a, it's a big whiplash effect. Uh, so I, I think we have to take a step back and ask uh, a bigger question for the role of the amyloid hypothesis or amyloid deposition in, in, in diseases like Alzheimer's or dementia in general. And um, I think we have learned enough to say that, um, you know, excessive amyloid production or, you know, impaired amyloid clearance in the setting of supraphysiological levels is harmful to the brain. That could be clearly seen in multiple animal models, uh, which are Frankenstein by definition. They have multiple mutations. And that can be partially seen in Down syndrome and in patients with autosomal dominant disease. Uh, patients with Down syndrome have, have duplication this APP protein, they produce tons of amyloid, and they get uh, extreme changes in both behavior and cognition that may resemble Alzheimer's in some respects, but also different from Alzheimer's. And early onset Alzheimer's patients also have certain changes that start to appear in the 40s and 50s that may resemble some aspects of late onset Alzheimer's, but not everything. Now, the, the, the opposite discussion happens to do with what happens with 80, 90-year-old-plus individuals. And, um, you know, many groups, including, uh, you know, my friend Kulda Kewas at UCI and others, have shown that centenarians have approximately 30% or more amyloid positivity in their brains uh, with no evidence of dementia whatsoever. Uh, so there are... There is evidence that there's amyloid accumulation with aging that does not lead to dementia. Where does that put us? In my mind, um, I, I think amyloid may have a role in disease when it hits a certain threshold, and that threshold is more hit in, page, in patients with Down syndrome and autosomal dominant AD than late onset AD. In some patients with late onset AD, may, maybe the amyloid load and toxicity goes so high that they could be driving the disease, but in other patients with Alzheimer's disease, amyloidosis is just a bystander and a biomarker as opposed to be driving the disease. The problem is the field in the last 10 years or so, or even more, has viewed amyloid as one thing, and they viewed that it's a target to pull all amyloid out, whether you have so much amyloid or more amyloid, let's pull it out and see what happens, and consistently trials have shown that it doesn't translate into clinical benefit. So I think, you know, coming from an APOE4 background, I, I constantly, you know, juggle with people is, what is the elephant in the room? And people think about it, what is the elephant in the room? What is the elephant in the room? And I keep saying, well, it's the APOE. It's APOE4 means 50% of patients with Alzheimer's disease. By far, it's the strongest risk factor. We should be more investing more in understanding how, because you're born with it. I mean, there's no question that, you're born with APOE4, it leads to amyloidosis, but it does so many different things on the brain. And understanding it is probably a better investment. Yeah, Fully absolutely. Wonderful, Beautiful. Wonderful. Uh, what? Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. We, we love your work. We, uh, we, uh, to be honest, after this conversation, I love your circumspect, careful, but yet informative approach to science. 
And uh, we hope to have many conversations and uh, hopefully collaborations in the future. We're so glad to have had this opportunity. Thank you so much for, for coming onto the show and we hope to speak with you again. Have a great day. Thank you so Thank much. You.